If you're a business professional, then it's very likely you're facing vital decisions right now about your future path. How should you make those decisions? Our guest says that if you're getting advice to follow your instincts, trust yourself, and fake it till you make it, well, you're getting bad advice. Today, we're focusing on management and decision-making with Dr. Gleb Sapersky, the disaster avoidance expert and author of Never Go With Your Gut on the Manage Your Message podcast. Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr. Come on in and welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. I'm Jim Carr. I help professionals and entire organizations to get the most out of their everyday business conversations, the ones that generate by far the most growth opportunities. Your specific situation coming out of the COVID-19 crisis isn't exactly the same as anyone else's. However, everyone is having or should be having some very different conversations than they did only a few months ago. And your customers are facing dramatic changes, as are your customers' customers and on down the line. Your market needs to hear from you in a certain way and consistently. And as we get into stages of economic recovery, which won't be the same everywhere, you and your team will need to adjust that message. It doesn't necessarily mean changing your entire business model, and it doesn't mean changing your mission or values. But it does mean some hard decisions about how everyone in your business should be talking about the business across virtual, digital, and Yes, as we bring back more in-person paths of communication, it also means figuring out how to train, teach, coach, and learn in this new environment. That's what we address on this podcast and what I consult and speak about, what I wrote about in my book, The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. You can find it in paperback, Kindle, and audio versions wherever great business books are sold. You can also find a free sample on my website, jimcar.com. Managing your message has three components. First, creating the message itself, the words, stories, insights, and evidence you want your customers and prospects to know about. Second, equipping and growing your network of messengers, the people who can help you share that message. And third, creating the management habits that will shape your culture and turn those improvements into an everyday business advantage. We bring all of this together because, simply put, it's much easier for you to grow your business all over again when you are a message manager. Chances are you're in the middle of important decisions for perhaps the very survival of your business, certainly decisions that will determine when and whether your business will be growing. Our guest today has some very timely, if contrarian, advice for you. I first learned about Dr. Gleb Sapersky because we have the same book publisher, Career Press. His latest book is titled, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. I found that we share a similar approach. We want to give practical advice that's grounded in both good science and real-world experience. Gleb was born in Moldova in Eastern Europe, immigrated to the U.S. at age 10. He's a former professor at Ohio State and founded a boutique consultancy called Disaster Avoidance Experts. The type of disasters he wants business professionals to avoid aren't the natural ones, such as tornadoes or flood damage. Instead, he focuses on decision disasters. 
Gleb works with a variety of corporate clients and nonprofits. He's been interviewed by the likes of CBS News, Fast Company, Psychology Today, Inc. Magazine, and CNBC. Dr. Gleb Sapersky, now welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. Your book and this whole topic about the proper ways to make decisions, I don't think could be any more timely. And so before we even get into a lot of the biases and a lot of the approaches that you recommend to help us get past those in business, it would seem to me, and based upon my experience and research that I've seen, that in times of particular decision-making stress, when the environment is, is bad, say, for example, you're in a global pandemic. There's been a major pullback in the economy. There's social unrest. You don't know what the future is going to be that those of us making decisions for our businesses or even for our families, we're probably more prone than ever to, to go with our gut or to go on instinct and maybe be at higher risk of a poor decision. Is that what you would find as well? You're absolutely right, Jim. The challenge is when we face more dire circumstances, more stressful circumstances, we become more emotional, more vulnerable, and we take less time to focus on our decision-making. So we have to understand where our decision-making comes from in the first place. When we go with our gut, you know, every one of us has heard the phrase, go with your gut, trust your intuition, follow your heart as the major way of making decisions. Unfortunately, what the recent research in cognitive neuroscience and behavioral economics shows is that that's a really terrible idea because our gut reactions, our instincts, our intuitions are not wired for the modern environment. They're wired for the savanna environment when we're hunters and foragers living in small tribes of 15 people to 150 people. And our primary reaction to threats, to these stressful environments, this external, threatening, dangerous stimuli, is the fight or flight response. You might have heard of this as a saber-toothed tiger response when we had had to jump at 100 shadows in order to get away from that one saber-toothed tiger. Well, that was great for our ancestors. You know, we're the descendants of those who jumped pretty quickly and flew away from the saber-toothed tiger. <laughs> Thanks because, to them. Exactly, because the ones who were a little bit slower got eaten and then, you know, spread their genes. So we're the descendants of those who had great flight responses or fight responses when we had to fight an attacking tribal member, something like that. So in the modern environment, we are very tempted. We are pushed, we are pulled, we are encouraged to go with that fight or flight response, whether that's, you know, let's say about the pandemic. Some people really fall into the flight response, meaning they ignore information about the pandemic. That's They're fleeing from the information. They're ignoring it, saying it's not a big deal. It's nothing worse than a cold. It's a hoax. People are making things up because it feels very uncomfortable to deal with the reality of the situation. And that's what some folks are doing. Other people are, of course, having the fight response, which is excessive, extreme response to the pandemic, whether it's going and buying everything in the grocery store or going in a business setting, going to their professional business continuity plan and just relying on that as though that's what it's for. It's not. As a disaster avoidance expert, I've done a lot of these business continuity plans, and they're not meant for a pandemic. They're a great fit for a blizzard or, let's say, 
a flood, Houston getting flooded. That was a perfect example. You know, one to two week business interruption. That's great. That's what a business continuity plan is meant for. That's that's what they're for. But right now, a lot of people are using them, still using them with the pandemic, and it's been months. You, that's not what it's for. You can't run on emergency mode for months. This is a marathon, not a sprint. The pandemic will be around for the next several years until 22, 23, 24, if we're unlucky. This is not a good situation if you're using your business continuity plan, and many people are. So this is an example where people are using the fight-or-flight response in stressful situations. And in fact, research shows that the more emotional, even more important decisions, the more important the decision is, of course, the more emotional it is. And the more important the decision, strangely enough, the more business leaders rely on their gut reactions rather than the data to deal with the decision. So it's not simply about the external context. It's also about the importance of the decision. Even more important decisions are dealt with more emotionally. Seems strange, seems weird, but that's what it is. And Gleb, pre-pandemic, and this will also be the case post-pandemic, or at least the, the major effects of the pandemic, what you are laying out in the book and what we'll talk about here in some more detail is against the grain in many ways, it's the the polar opposite of a lot of the advice that we receive, as you were saying, you know, follow your intuition, a lot of be authentic, follow your passion, go by the seat of your pants. So that's a lot of what goes for uh, decision-making advice and coaching these days. And then also in the business press and the popular press, we tend to hear the stories of the entrepreneurs, the business leaders who seem to have these superior instincts, who who did follow their passion, who did it on their gut you know, in the face of, of overwhelming odds. And we rarely hear the stories of people who fell into the decision-making trap. So I, I wonder, while everyone wants to make good decisions and feel like they're making good decisions, do you, do you run into that roadblock a bit in trying to have the message out there? Because it seems like the stories and the advice that get uh, highlighted are the people who have gone with their gut and have these great instincts. Those are the stories that are highlighted and they're great stories. Unfortunately, if you look at the reality of the situation for entrepreneurs, so I am an entrepreneur. I run a six people consulting, coaching and training company. And before I started the company, I looked at the statistics of success for entrepreneurs. And you know what? About half of all startups fail within the first five years, about two-thirds fail within the first 10 years, and three-quarters fail within the first 15 years. Overwhelmingly, they fail because entrepreneurs follow this very unfortunate advice to go with their gut, trust their intuitions. You know, if you look at the causes of startup failure, there are two primary causes. One cause lack of fit between product offerings and the market. That means that the entrepreneur, there are so many entrepreneurs who have a strong belief, who have a strong intuition that their product will work. It's going to be a great product. Everything will be fine. And they don't do nearly enough market research to see whether there's an actual desire for their product or what kind of competition they have. They feel in their gut that it works. And then their gut results in business failure. That's, you know, a lot of the cases of business failure come from that. The second biggest reasons is running out of cash, running out of cash before an enterprise becomes profitable. And that comes from entrepreneurs 
running in too many different directions, doing too many different projects, not settling in and focusing enough. Because it feels very tempting to take on many different projects. And I know this. It feels very tempting for me to take on very many different projects. It feels very good to do a lot of things instead of focusing on the most profitable thing. It feels boring, kind of, you know, been there, done that. It doesn't feel comfortable to my gut. Many entrepreneurs are like me, and it doesn't. I suffer from the optimism bias, which is something that very many entrepreneurs suffer from. We see the world as a nice place and look at opportunities and not threats. And we have 20 ideas before breakfast and think all of them are brilliant. Unfortunately, they're not always all that brilliant. So this is what happens with entrepreneurs. Now, unfortunately, the stories that you hear are of people who succeeded. And often people who succeed, succeed due to random chance. That's very often what they succeed. Now, those 25% of the people, many succeed due to random chance. But plenty of times, people who succeed do it due to very effective decision-making strategies. So if you look at people like, let's say, Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates, you know, if you look at those folks, look at their decision-making processes, they are two of the most effective decision-makers in entrepreneurial history. And you look at Bill Gates, you look at Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos recently gave a speech about a year ago to his employees saying that, you know, Amazon will definitely fail sometime. Our goal is to delay failure as much as possible. So scan the environment for negative situations and address it, which is a very ineffective decision-making strategy, but not intuitive at all. Bill Gates is well known for spending a week, a year, looking for major threats to Microsoft when he was still running Microsoft and addressing them in advance. Very not intuitive technique. So Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and many others, they convey a myth of effective decision-making. They say, hey, my gut is great and therefore you should trust me. Whereas in reality, the decision-making processes that they do take look nothing like trusting my gut and following my intuition. They convey that myth and it's a nice myth to have because it's nice for people to believe that you have some magical decision-making process. So it's not the case at all that people go with their gut and they just win. There's there's so many people who go with their gut and they lose. And overwhelmingly, when you compare decision-making, you know, scientists, me, others who have studied decision-making processes, and you compare people who go with their gut versus you compare people who follow a structured decision-making process that addresses decision-making errors, you'll see that the people who follow the structured decision-making process will overwhelmingly win out. They'll have much more money. They'll have much more time. They'll have much less stress than the people who go with their, you know, who fly by the seat of their pants. Interesting. And, and Gleb, you do a nice job in your research or speaking and in your book, Never Go With Your Gut, about identifying some very common biases and some a lot of these we aren't terribly conscious of. And so we don't take these into account when we're making decisions. And by the way, Gleb, some of the ones that you describe, I'm guilty of those as well. We, we all are, yes. I guess, to varying degrees. I thought we uh, could discuss a few of them, some that stood out the most to me and the ones that I, I run across a lot uh, myself with clients um, along the way. The first two, and these seem like they may be contradictory. I wanted to cover these first, and we may cover a few others, as well as ways to get around our, our biases. But the first two to talk about are overconfidence, which you just touched upon a moment ago. And then we can talk about loss aversion as well. So the reader might look at these and go, well, wait a minute, how can we be overconfident, but shying away from the probability of loss? Let's take that overconfidence one first. 
does that show up as you see it often in trying to do too much or, or giving yourself too much credit for an idea that hasn't been tested? That's part of it. So overconfidence bias has to do with excessive confidence in your judgments, whatever they are. So for example, optimists, people who fall into the optimism bias like myself, will be too confident about their positive judgments. There are people who usually are not entrepreneurs, let me be very clear, pessimists, pessimism bias. These are people who feel that the world is a hostile place, is a negative place, they're risk avoidant. When they're working in an enterprise, they're great at operations. So if you look at the CEO, you'll overwhelmingly see that CEOs are fall into the optimism bias. But people in the COO role, or especially the CFO role, the CFO role especially, so the finances, will tend to fall into the pessimism bias. They'll see the world as a more hostile place, a more riskful place, so a place that they need to defend themselves from. And they will have too much confidence in their negative judgments. So overconfidence goes both ways, goes into the positive way, goes into the negative way. We are, as human beings, not nearly humble enough. We don't take nearly enough time to look at the situation before making a judgment. And this is inbuilt in our genes. You know, if we were in the savannah environment, if we stood around and thought, hmm, that sounds like a crackling noise. What should I do about that noise? Should I run away or should I, you know, or should I stay here and uh, wait and you know, try to figure out what the source of the noise is? Well, the ones who ran away were the ones who are most likely to survive. <laughs> so that's <laughs> something that we needed to do in the savanna environment. In the modern environment, that's a terrible move. The modern environment, of course, you have many less threats to your life and to your well-being. You have, and the kind of threats you face are the kind of things that it's much more important in business situations and professional decision-making to gather more evidence and before jumping, to think about what is the direction, what are the appropriate strategies, what are the appropriate techniques. And we can very clearly see that with very clear data based on how much money various people get from various strategies, that gathering information, being humble, not being too confident, will very much improve your bottom line, will improve your profit. But that's not what people tend to do. So that's overconfidence goes in both ways, too negative and too positive. And you need to know yourself. You need to know whether you suffer from the optimism bias or you suffer from the pessimism bias and how optimistic are you and how pessimistic are you. Then you need to calibrate for that, for your overconfidence in either direction. And then you need to address this calibration. So the probabilistic thinking, we can talk about that. There are various techniques to address these challenges. So that's overconfidence bias. We tend to be way too confident. That's one. Loss aversion. We tend to be loss aversion. This is separate. We are too confident about loss aversion in all cases. So loss aversion has to do with our tendency to avoid losses. Now, in the Savannah environment, it was very important for us to not lose, to prefer avoiding losses over getting gains. Because if we had too much resources, we can save these resources. If we kill the mammoth, it's not like we could freeze the meat. You know, In the modern environment, you obviously had a refrigerator, but there you didn't. But if you take too many risks and you get you know, a small scratch that results in blood poisoning, then you'll die. So it was much more important to avoid small scratches than to get large amounts of resources. In the modern environment, you get a small scratch, it's not a big deal. And in fact, if you get resources like money, you could put it in a bank, you, know, you can invest in your house, obviously you can invest in your company. So make a long-term plan in the company and figure things out. And you can invest in your career long-term, get various forms of professional development, get various forms of coaching, 
of course, in the Savannah environment, you couldn't invest in your career. What, are you going to become a better ex-chipper or something? That's not really going to help you. <laughs> <laughs> so in the Savannah environment, we it was the right thing for us to do to avoid losses. In the modern environment, what we tend to do is try to avoid losses even at the expense of much bigger gains. So there's a famous study where if I give somebody $40, so let's say if you're a listener and I give you $40, so you hear you have $40, it's in your hand, it's yours. Then I say, would you give me this $40 for a chance to flip a coin and you get $100 if it's heads and zero if it's tails. So if the listener, think about your choice. Would you keep the $40 or would you want the coin flip? Most people will keep the $40. They feel comfortable. It's theirs. They don't want to take the risk. But if you think about the equivalence of what is the coin flip, well, flipping a coin, that's 50-50 either way, and 50% of $100 is, of course, $50. So it's the equivalent of $50 that you're giving up when you're not, you know, you're not trading $40 for the equivalent of $50. And that really hurts you down the road. Because if you think about the coin flip, you know, one off, it's not a big deal. It's a difference of $10. But what about if it's a 100 coin flips? And it's a difference of $1,000. What if it's a million coin flips, then it's a difference of you know a million dollars. That gets into large numbers, really large differences. And people don't think about these differences. When I talk about this example, people say, "Well, hey, you just said it's a one-off." You know, I was just thinking about it as a one-off coin flip. And I tell people that we tend to think about all of our decisions, all the decisions that we face, as a one-off decision. And that's a big problem for us because decisions that we face are not actually one-offs. They're part of a bigger pattern. You need to see all of your decisions as part of a bigger pattern and treat it as a part of a bigger pattern to address the loss aversion and other problems in our thinking. Because if you think about it, that $10 out of $40, that's 25% of your income. So if you think about losing 25% of your income per year because you fall into loss aversions and don't take the right risks and don't make the necessary steps, you will probably not want to do that. The vast majority of us will choose not to do that. But unfortunately, that's not how our mind works. So that's something that we need to very carefully and thoughtfully address as we go forward. I find this loss aversion. I I think back, Gleb, to uh, my undergraduate days, long, long time ago. I was an undergraduate finance major. And I also think of a lot of the things that I see in working with, with buyers and especially with sellers today in the in the modern business environment. And, and as I was going back into my memory banks from my undergraduate finance studies, I remember a few things. There were a few powerful ideas that were beaten into our heads. One is that there's a difference between risk and uncertainty, right? Where you can assign probabilities in one case and the other, you really don't know what you don't know. A second was that money has time value. A dollar today is worth something different than a dollar tomorrow or at some point in the future. But the number one thing, and I remember one of the professors putting this in large block letters on this thing called a chalkboard (laughs) years ago, said, ignore sunk costs. So money that you've spent or a decision that you've made in the past, if, if you can't unring that bell, then it should not go into your evaluation of something going forward. And yet, we see it all the time, right? Someone says, well, I don't want to invest in new software because we spent money on software four years ago and it didn't work or, or et cetera, et cetera. Or we've, we, we tried something in a different circumstance and it didn't seem to work. And I don't want to put good money after bad. 
Where does this come from? How pervasive is it in terms of this particular form of loss aversion? Loss aversion is one of the, our worst cognitive biases, and especially for leaders who have PL responsibility, profit and loss responsibility. There's a number of ways that it comes into being, but the key ones is that we tend to not to ignore sunken costs. We tend not to ignore money and resources that we already invested when we make future decisions. We don't step back and we don't say, hey, going forward from this point, what is the best course of action given the resources I have and whatever the situation is right now? That's not what people do. They think about the history of the project and think about all the efforts that have gone into it when they make decisions. That's a very bad approach because, of course, you can't change the past. You can only change the future. However, this has to do really with our emotions. When we put in time and efforts into a project, into an activity, into professional development, whatever we're doing, whatever we want to achieve, we develop an emotional attachment. We become emotionally invested into it. We have buy-in into it. And after we have buy-in, it's very hard to detach ourselves and say, okay, let me now look at this objectively after I have spent so many resources on it. So that sense of emotional attachment where we have a very strong connection to it is one problem, emotional attachment. Another related problem to the extent that the leader, that the decision maker is in a position of responsibility for the past efforts. So let's say, you know, you don't have a new team member. It's much easier to make a decision, by the way, a fair, accurate decision. If you come in on a project that's already been done by somebody else and who has put in resources into it, and then you make a decision about it going forward. But if you've put in the resources and if you'd make the decision, If you change your mind and you say, okay, we shouldn't do this project anymore, then you're wrong. (laughs) You have to acknowledge that you're wrong. And that is a big problem for people. Acknowledging that we're wrong is a big threat to our ego, to our sense of self. That is a very important ability for leaders. Leaders, it's so critical, so important. I'd say one of the biggest, biggest top three skills for leaders is being able to change their minds, being able to update their beliefs based on new information, and being able to, as part of that, of course, admit that their previous beliefs and plenty of times actions were wrong, you know, wrong-headed, not the right thing, you need to change, but it's very hard to do. So those are the reasons why it's very hard for us to detach ourselves from sunken costs and make good decisions. A lot of these biases can work at different times. They can work together. I'll see the scenario very often, say someone comes into an existing uh, company and they're the new person. They've been brought in from the outside. Oftentimes they're going to run operations or they're going to run product development or marketing, whatever the case might be. And there's a sense that they do need to change, right? They're, they've been brought in as a change agent. So they might discount the people who are in place. They might discount the validity of the strategy or, or things that were set as well. Do you run into that too? Of course, you do run into that. And that comes partially from the overconfidence bias. They're too confident about their own methods and that they have know the right things. Then they don't take the time to listen and evaluate what's actually going on locally. That happens often when you bring in an unthoughtful outside expert that who wants to just use her or his techniques, regardless of what has gone on in the past, or when you bring in a leader who is 
less than, uh, let me say this way, who is a weak leader in many ways, and uh, he or she will want to prove themselves right away by making changes. They feel that they need to make changes in order to prove themselves, demonstrate themselves, as opposed to taking the time to evaluate and listen what's been going on in the past. So those are definitely signs of a weak leader, an ignorant expert who is just not thinking about the local situation. And it happens very often and it's quite dangerous. So you want to be very careful about who you bring in to make sure that these are not people who are weak, who are very much egoistic and very dependent on their ego being satisfied through imposing their own will on the situation. Sure. Now, Gleb, we could admire all of these biases and all of the problems that we have uh, our ancient brains, ancient instincts trying to guide us through a a modern world. But there's a lot of good news in your book and in uh, research around decision-making. You list in your book a number of techniques for recognizing biases that you might have yourself or may exist in the organization on your team and some ways to address those and make consistently good decisions. They range from meditation to thinking in terms of scenarios and predictions and using probabilities. Could you summarize for us whether you're someone who is a new leader or you're trying to affect some change, particularly in the stressful time of some ways that uh, leaders, decision makers can at least get these biases on the table and lessen their impact? What I want to share is, first of all, a method to make casual daily decisions that you don't want to screw up. So these are five questions to avoid decision disasters that you can use. It's a practical technique that takes only a couple of minutes. doesn't take much time at all. Once people learn how to use it, it just becomes automatic and it saves really hundreds of hours and many thousands of dollars from fixing problems. That's the five questions to avoid decision disasters. There is a separate technique that I talk about in the book of eight steps to make major decisions. So the five questions to avoid decision disasters is only to prevent serious problems as a result of your decision, not to make the perfect decision, but just to make the good enough decision. Then there's a separate eight-step technique to make the best decision possible. So let's talk about the five questions to avoid decision disasters. You want to ask them daily, two to five times a day. It's bad if you're not asking them two to five times a day. Let me say it this way. You want to make sure that you're doing that two to five times a day when you want to make any decision that you don't want to screw up. Let's say you're writing an important email to a client and you want to persuade the client to do something that you know the client should do and the client really knows that they should do, but they kind of don't want to do it. It's a hassle, stressful or something. So first question, what important information didn't I yet fully consider? So what evidence didn't you take into account? It's very tempting for us to ignore information that goes against our beliefs and look for information that goes with our beliefs. So that's called the confirmation bias, one of the most famous cognitive biases. You might have heard about it. For example, you might be ignoring information in the email that the client should not do what you want the client to do because it's a hassle, it's stressful, it's painful in some way. Well, if you ignore that information and just hope the client doesn't notice it, it's unlikely to help you. But if you include that information in the email and say, hey, I know it's going to be stressful and it's going to be a hassle, but here are the reasons you should do it anyway, the email will be much more persuasive. So that's one. Second, what dangerous judgment errors didn't I yet address? So think about these cognitive biases. Which of them might you not have addressed? Let's say you're an optimist, so you orient always toward the bright side of life. You might not be thinking about all the negatives, all the risks that the client would face in taking on the project. But 
if you do include these risks, if you do include these problems, of course, the risky things, the problems, then it would be more likely for that you would write a persuasive email, which would take the risks into account. Third, what would a trusted and objective advisor suggest I do? So think about that little angel on your shoulder. What would they suggest you do? Take yourself outside of yourself. So you get about 50% of the benefit of this by taking yourself outside of yourself and asking yourself something like, what would I tell a trusted friend to do in this situation? And of course, you can get the other 50% of the benefit by calling your trusted and objective advisor, or if you're in millennial, texting this person. Fourth, how have I addressed all the ways this could fail? So think about this email. What if your client is stuck at home because there's an outbreak in their area and their kids are at home and they're crawling all over them and they're in a bad mood and they're distracted? Read the email as though you're in a bad mood and you're distracted. And then evaluate it and revise it to make it more positive and friendly so that the person in a bad mood wouldn't interpret it negatively and also draw the client's attention to the most important parts of the email for in case the client is distracted. Finally, fifth question, what new information would cause me to revisit this decision? So what would cause you to change your mind about this email, let's say? You can have a very clear revision point. So let's say you say, in a week, if I don't hear back from the client, I will call my client. That's a very clear revision point. You know what you need to do. If you don't have that, you'll be wondering every day, why is the client not responding to me? What is she thinking? What's going on? And you will be preoccupied with it. Whereas otherwise, if you do have that revision point, you can just let it go, go forward, do your things. And if needed, just give the client a call in a week. These five questions take only a couple of minutes. You know, I just talked through them in a couple of minutes. They take only a couple of minutes to do if you're all right and if you're on target. And believe me, if they take more time to do than that, that indicates the decision is problematic in some way. And you definitely want to take more time to make the best decision. And to that point, or the worry I can imagine some of our listeners would have about taking time, in the same way that just the whole admonition to don't go with your gut runs counter to a lot of what we hear and a lot of the advice that we get. The other thing is that these days we are more and more in tune with the pressure to be fast, to be agile as individuals and especially in our businesses, to be able to move quickly and innovate and all that. And I can imagine a few people might think, look, you're telling me some things that make some sense, but we can't slow ourselves down. We can't analyze our decisions endlessly. So does following this approach mean that you have to go slower or does it actually, uh, can it get you to where you need to go faster? Well, first of all, let me highlight that there's nothing more dangerous than going full speed in the wrong direction. You're definitely getting farther away from where you want to be going. And, you know, there's a reason that about, for example, in major decisions, let's just take a look at major decisions. Look at mergers and acquisitions. There's few decisions bigger than mergers and acquisitions. One of the biggest decisions that a firm can make is a merger and acquisition. But unfortunately, about 79 to 90% of them fail to work out, according to extensive research on this, depending on which study. 70 to 90% of all mergers and acquisitions fail to create value. So you see that they are very bad ideas. And there's a reason that about over 50% of all product launches fail. And again, major decisions going in the very wrong direction. You don't want to suffer from that. So that's the first part of what I want to highlight. 
if you are going and rushing too much and going too fast, you're working to put out fires, deal with crises, that's a sign that there's seriously bad decision-making in your company, very wrong decision-making. If you're going too far too fast, I'm sorry for a lot of folks who are in that situation. I understand that. And I have plenty of clients who are in that situation or were before they came to me and uh, who realized that, hey, we're making some pretty bad decisions. We're shooting ourselves in the foot. And that's why we're dealing with these crises and these fires. We're not having a good plan going forward. So that's what it's something I want to highlight about decision-making crises. If people are in that mode, that indicates likely that there's problems in their decision-making processes. That's one. Second, these five questions to avoid decision disasters. So I'll tell you about a, a study that was done in the UK on firefighting leaders. So this is UK leaders of firefighting teams literally in making decisions in the heat of the moment. They evaluated mistakes in firefighting leadership, and they found that about 80% of all mistakes in firefighting contexts come from human error, purely human error, bad decision-making. So they taught firefighters a version of these five questions, and the firefighting leaders, they were trained on this, and so it took a couple of months for them to train on it, to be comfortable with asking these questions Now, what they found was after a couple of months when they did this training was that the firefighting leaders did not take any more time who were trained on these questions to make decisions, but they made much better decisions than the people who weren't. So think about to your own decision-making processes. Let's say you have a team decision-making meeting. How long do you spend on each person talking out their opinions on the decision, the pros and the cons and all the issues involved? That takes a long time, and you might not be anywhere closer to a decision, a good decision, by the time you end the meeting. Whereas what my clients do is they follow a very clear agenda. They have everyone ask themselves and come up with answers to these five questions before they have the meeting. And then they talk about each of these questions as part of the agenda. The agenda is structured by these five questions. They find that they get through meetings much quicker, and their decisions are much more effective, much wiser, much more accurate after they institute this sort of structure and format. So they take much less time to make decisions, comparatively speaking. And I mean, it's not zero, but it's less time than they did before. And their decisions are much more accurate. So you get the best of both worlds, and it takes just a structure of your decision-making process. A great point. And Gleb, you and I haven't talked about this specifically, Message Manager listeners. I'll share with you how I first came to hear about uh, Dr. Gleb Sapersky. We share the same publisher, Career Press. And so when I talk about Gleb's book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, it came from talking with people actually at uh, the publisher saying, you know, Jim, there's someone that's doing some really cool work. It's also science-based. It's based on business growth. And they didn't tell me, I think they might have been thinking, Gleb, that you're a better writer than I, perhaps, but <laughs> no one said anything. But I uh, had some very good things to say. We were able to get connected. I've uh, gone through the book. I think it's full of a lot of sound and also very practical tips that any of us, whether you're leading a business, leading a team, trying to just make best decisions for your own career and your family is uh, is very, very helpful. So I really appreciate the time. And by the way, message manager listeners, we will have all a series of links, of course, in our show description. And, and Gleb, my last name gets butchered all the time. If you're just doing a Google search and you get G-L-E-B, for Gleb's first name, he'll own the first, you know, three or four pages of results. But could you uh, 
Gleb, could you recommend uh, just talk a little about where listeners can find the book and just other ways that they can keep in touch with you and uh, your guidance and the things that you're writing and speaking about? Oh, thank you, Jim. Yes. So you can always check out Curio Press is a great traditional publisher. So it's available in physical bookstores if they're open around you, but definitely online, Amazon, Barnes Noble, all other bookstores. And there's a physical form, of course, so paperback, there's digital form, and there's audiobooks. So people who like Audible, check that out. My own resources are available at disasteravoidanceexperts.com. Again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com. There's blogs, videos, podcasts, decision aids, guides, manuals, virtual training, consulting, coaching, and of course, in person once the pandemic is over. And you especially want to check out disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe for a free eight video-based module course on making the wisest decisions and an assessment on cognitive biases in the workplace. So again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe for the assessment on dangerous judgment errors called cognitive biases in the workplace and the free eight video-based module course on making the wisest decisions. And my favorite social media is LinkedIn, so I'll be happy to connect with you there. You know, if you put in Gleb, you'll probably get me pretty quickly, but yes, it's going to be Dr. Gleb Sapursky there, so G-L-E-B-T-S-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y. And again, we will have those properly spelled links all through our show description. Uh, Gleb, it was a real pleasure to be able to have this conversation with you, and I, I hope uh, we might bring you back again soon because there are lots of other areas of decision-making we didn't get to talk about directly. But this has been a great overview and, and a lot of uh, good resources. Thanks again for joining us here on the Manager Message Podcast. Thank you so much, Jim. I really appreciate it. Thanks to you for joining us on the podcast. Whether you are a returning message manager listener or this is your first time in, new listeners are finding us through good pods, through personal recommendations, or even some lists. We made a popular list shared on LinkedIn of the top podcasts for binge listening during the pandemic. I hope you will share your five-star rating and review and subscribe so that you don't miss a thing. Whatever the case... I hope you continue to find ideas for honing your message, growing your base of messengers, and growing your business. You can dig in more deeply by reading or listening to my new book, The Science of Customer Connections, Manage Your Message to Grow Your Business. You can find it wherever business books are sold, and you can even check out a free sampler on my website, jimcarr.com, K-A-R-R-H. I welcome your connection on LinkedIn, and I would love to hear your ideas for future guests and topics. You can email me directly at jim at jimcar.com, and my direct mobile number is also on the website. So let's talk. And if you're feeling the urgency to address your everyday business message and adapt to this new environment, then let's examine some options. I have a number of message leadership and growth programs, which I deliver virtually and in person so that you and everyone around your business can likewise be comfortable and effective in their customer conversations in all of the ways that they will be happening. Until next time, message managers, thanks for joining the conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcarr.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast. And connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, we hope your business message is shared well and often. <laughs>